You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I, we read the Bible, we talk about it, sometimes make jokes, we rely on the mercy of God and hope that he has a sense of humor. I think he does. I mean, I, I've i seen the platypus and a few other disturbing things in nature. <laughs> yeah, we watched an ocean documentary recently and that was weird. Ocean critters are the strangest. I, I don't even know. And and you don't get to see them. I mean, like, they're, they're the least seen and they're the most bizarre. So grotesque, I think, is the right word for most of them. Yeah, there's a, it, it was an interesting documentary. It's called Puff. I think it's on Netflix. No. Follows, the, follows a puffer fish. Okay. Okay. Not Puff the Magic Dragon. No, Puff, puff the Confused-Looking Puffer Fish. <laughs> Aren't they? Because they always kind of look a little confused. Don't they all look confused? So. <laughs> but, um. No, they're, they're, they're good creatures, I guess. I had a friend who had one once. Okay. I, 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 have, I don't know what I think about having one of those pets. I like pets you can interact with, not ones that, you know, might poison you accidentally. Well, it, you know, his was in, a, in an aquarium, and he, uh, he fed him snails. And it was interesting because whenever, yeah, they have beaks that they have to wear down, so they have to eat shelled things. Okay. And whenever he would eat the snails, you could hear them you could hear crunch, a click whenever yeah you could hear him like crunching on snails from the aquarium yeah but you can't snuggle with those so that's you know no no you can't and then i know the story is getting a little too long already <laughs> but um one time he tried to feed him a crab and the crab but the crab found like he found a, a safe place where the puffer fish couldn't get to inside of the aquarium stuff like his you mm-hmm. know his like fake rocks and stuff. Right. And so the crab just like lived the rest of his life <laughs> under the rock and like scuttling out to grab food every now and again. And it was, it was pretty interesting. Yeah. See, that's just not even, I'll take a dog or a cat. We're good. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyhow. But, um, all that's beside the point. We are back in the studio <laughs> um, after, a, after a week off. Um, because we had planned to get together for Christmas and then, uh, that didn't come to fruition. Then we were going to get together for new year's. That's not going to happen now, um, because of weather. Um, apparently winter is scheduled for Saturday in Oklahoma. (laughs) It might Uh, last two days. Uh, (laughs) that's, that's generally how it goes here, but that's fine. Um, so January 1st, we plan to go nowhere and do Mostly nothing. Oh, that sounds about right. I think we're working on the in the yard. Uh, you know, one of the joys of having a yard. Finally, we've been doing a mm-hmm. lot, a lot of yard work, and uh, you know, it's fun. So we've been taking advantage of the warm weather, and I've been picking moss and transplanting it, and it's it's good. Uh, <laughs> well, best of luck. Best of yeah. luck. <laughs> so anyway, we are in Second Samuel chapter twenty. Uh, last week we got through verse three. Uh, we really didn't, or last time we recorded, uh, didn't get that far because, uh, you know, there's just a lot of stuff that went into the background. And uh, basically, David has um, 
replaced Joab as his commander. Amasa, who was formerly Absalom's general, is now in charge of David's troops. And right on the heels of Absalom's revolt, we have this guy named Shiva who said, hey, I, I, we have no portion with David. And we talked about how that related back to that Deuteronomy 32, uh, verse 89, uh, that same language. We find it in some other verses. And basically, this guy is saying, let's return back to the time of the judges. Let's go back to when we ruled ourselves. I, I think if we we're going to compare this to um, kind of politics that we could uh, understand today, maybe kind of anarchy, you know, we're all protecting ourselves. We're all doing our own thing. There is no cohesive unit. And you know, we really got a sense of how precarious David's position in Israel as a king is. And we talked mm -hmm. about how we need to remember the time of the judges was not that long ago. And we need to remember how judges ended and how the violence and the gore and just the, the, the violence against women in particular was something that marked that time. And so there, there's some really interesting parallels there that we, we got to talk about. And that's important as we move forward, because we're going to encounter another woman shortly in the story. And uh, she's also going to be one of these women who is going to shape David's reign and rule, and she's going to play a major part. And she's also caused some really interesting questions that we haven't been able to answer until archaeology. And so there's been some debate among scholars, but archaeologists have answered some questions for us. So we're going to get into that, but um, we got to get there first. So we're going to pick up in verse four. And um, this is David. He's talking to Amasa. And this is the first recorded command we have him giving Amasa as his new general. And it says, and the king said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, and he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. So it, we, we don't start off with, a good, with, with anything good. Uh, basically, David gives Amasa this command. He says, you know, go to Judah, which was appropriate, because remember, Amasa is Joab's cousin. He, he's David's nephew, just like Joab. So uh, he's part of the family. He's from the tribe of Judah. For him to go to Judah together then would have been totally... Um, totally appropriate, and they should have responded. And he manages to do the first part. He manages to gather the men of Judah, but he doesn't make it at the third day. He, he misses that window. And we're not told how or why he was delayed. The, the scripture doesn't give that. Evidently, the writer Samuel didn't think that that was important. We just need to know, whatever it is, Amasa did not respect David's command well enough to be where he was supposed to be. And this is a problem. So, of course, the rabbis, they've got to give us an explanation. They, they you know, they don't like these gaps in the story. So this, actually, I don't even know if that's true. They may really like the gaps in the story because it gives them this window to fill in with these wonderful tales and to really influence how these particular people would be perceived in, a, in Judaism above and beyond the story as it's presented. So they say that um, some of the commanders in Amasa's um, army, or some of them that he was sent to, to uh, summon, were actually engaged in Torah study. And because it's Torah study, he could not, um, 
he, he could not disturb that. So he had to wait for them to complete their studies. And once they were completed, then he could summon them. And so this actually demonstrates that Amasa had a great love for the Torah. Now, I don't... S- <laughs> I, I think it's funny that almost every time there's a problem <laughs> or, a, or a gap, it, it's always insert Torah study. If, if you need a reason, Torah study. Right. Well, this is what you're supposed to go back to in Judaism. Everything's supposed to be revolving around Torah study, study of commentary on Torah, the study of uh, stories and folklore around Torah. So you do all this. And I, I think this is one of the interesting things. Uh, I don't mean to go off on this rabbit trail, but why not? Christians have sure. a really bad taste in their mouth a lot of times for these um, extraneous accounts and the, these random stories that are included. What you ha- need to remember is these types of stories were actually told with a purpose. That The purpose is to always point you back to Torah. Why do you remember to study Torah? Because everybody in the Bible did it. Every story goes back to that in the Bible if you take these extra you know, additions into account. So that way you aren't getting lost um, and distracted by the action and the violence and the gore of David's rule and reign. You're remembering, oh, my purpose and my goal as a good follower of Torah is to always study. We need to study constantly. So that's, that's the reason for that. And, you know, we, and we use stories even in our own uh, culture today to do this sort of thing. Um, you know, we can look at fairy tales. I think we're all very familiar with those. You know, the, the purpose and the goal is to train children to, to obey, is, is to instill the sense of fear that you don't cross these certain lines. You don't go into the forest. You don't, you know, interact with strangers. Eh. Yeah. Like Dwight Schrute, learn your rules. Better learn your rules. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I mean, if you, if you have these stories to back up what you're doing, then all of a sudden you can hang on to it. Your, your mind, your brain is, is wired. It's hardwired to, to retain stories instead of just list of facts. So that's one of the reasons why I like to bring the stories up is because they're interesting and they even help us, even if we don't agree with them or we think they're kind of silly or pointless, they, they kind of make us think about the text in a little different manner. But so whether or not Amasa's delay was justified um, is kind of beside the point. Uh, some, I think it was Zamora who said that... Um, it was possible that basically Amasa felt like once he had the generals, he didn't need to report back to David. He felt like he could just go fight. And so if he didn't, um, didn't need David's support, he didn't need David's, um, what's the word I'm looking approval for what he was doing. He just wanted to go out and take matters into his own hands. So once again, we have this, this blatant disrespect for what the king has ordered him to do. And that's a problem. We, we don't want that. We, we want a general who's going to obey the king. So David realizes that this is an issue. And in verse 6, he says uh, to Abishai, Now Shiva, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to a fortified city and escape from us. Now, David immediately turns to Abishai. Now, Abishai, we need to remember, is another one of the sons of Zariah. This is Joab's brother. 
And so David, in a time of trouble, he, he reverts to doing what he normally does, which is he counts on these sons of Zuria. We don't know exactly how long they were with David. We do know that they were with David going back to that time when he was fleeing from Saul in the hill country. So not only are they David's nephews, but they're also his brothers in arms. And there is that, that real sense of dependence. And it's really interesting that David's instinct, even though he's been mad at Joab, even though he, he has been frustrated with Abishai so many times, his first instinct is to turn around and rely on them once again. And so, because we remember, um, for those of you who may have slept since the last podcast, twice Abishai has been the guy who said, hey, let's just kill him. Let's kill Saul. Let's kill Shimei. And twice he, mm-hmm. he wanted to kill Shimei. And David's like, no, you, know, you guys, you just, you always want to kill someone. What's wrong with you? Quit trying, you know, basically he, he says, this is not the way we handle things. And it is interesting that David considers, um, considers Shiva to be more of a threat than Absalom. And it could be that Sheba is capitalizing on the rift between Judah and other tribes because Sheba is not from uh, Judah. He, he's a Benjaminite. And so he could be just really trying to divide that wedge further. David can already see how the kingdom is starting to fracture along those, those tribal lines with Judah being on one side and the other 10 tribes on the other. And the also could be that the propaganda appealing to individual autonomy and the, the idea that it's better to rule yourself than to submit to a king. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. That's got a certain appeal that even replacing David with a new king just didn't carry. Because uh, I think people overall tend to think, I'd rather do what I want to do. I don't necessarily want somebody bossing me around. No. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's kind of kind of an interesting question about why David was scared of him more so than Absalom. And it could be, too, that David thought that Absalom, as his son, on some level, would at least carry forward the tradition. And Absalom, you know, there's even the slight possibility that he could have been the fulfillment of the prophecy that God was going to adopt one of David's sons. Remember, we don't have a name for the son that's going to be adopted back in, back in chapter 7. We just know that one of David's sons, so David may have seen it, well, this is how God's going to fulfill that. And, you know, obviously, Shiva's totally outside the covenant. He doesn't belong to these promises that um, God has made to David. So there's a good possibility that David just really doesn't know um, how to respond to, to Shiva in, as opposed to Absalom. So. Then we have another question that is proposed by the Hebrew, and I, this is where having that little, um, little bit of Hebrew behind the reading helps, mm-hmm. because the Hebrew is very ambiguous, because David tells Abishai, take your Lord's servants. Now, when he's speaking to Abishai, who is Abishai's Lord? Now, one reading is that this is David's referring to himself in the third person, which would not be in common with royalty. You know, take your Lord's servants, take my servants, do what needs to be done. And he could be talking about the warriors already present in Jerusalem. However, he could be referring to Joab 
because the armies answered directly to Joab up until Amasa um, replaced him. And the Hebrew doesn't really tell us in this verse, but it does set that question in your mind. How do we answer this? And I think we have to keep reading to answer it. But David's fear of Shiva is that he's going to make it to a fortified city, and that's going to be very telling. And the, the Hebrew itself at the end of this verse is, a, it's Samuel. We haven't had a major textual po- problem in a while. Here it is. We don't know what it is. Basically, the, the connotation from the context is that he's going to escape from us, but basically he's going to disappear from our eyes. He's going to cover our eyes. He's going to give us the slip is what it amounts to. And okay. so I, I think it's really interesting that you, you do get this picture that, that baffles translators. Uh, I think that's one of the things that we have a lot of academics working in in the Hebrew translations who are these very linear thinkers who who really get the syntax and all of that sort of thing. And sometimes the imagery messes with their heads, where sometimes I come at it as an artist where I, I do work with images. And it's like, no, of course, the image makes total sense. You just you have to think abstractly because the Hebrew language is not a scientific language. It is a language of faith. And in faith, there are these doubts, there's these gaps, there's these little holes that need to be filled in. And you kind of have to to just flow with it and let yourself be taken by the language and the direction that the context and the, the total narrative takes you rather than t- pulling out these little sound bites. And it's much easier to pull sound bites out of Greek, which gives you very precise terms, very precise linear um, uses of the words, mm-hmm. as opposed to the Hebrew, where you have these big, broad brushstrokes. I mean, I think if you had to um, compare the two in artistic terms, uh, Hebrew is more of a Monet or, um, you know, we've got the, uh, the impressionistic kind of styling. Where with uh, Greek, you're looking more at an etching, you know, it's, it's the more precise yeah. kind of thing. So it's, it's a difference in the way of thinking. And that's what a lot of people, when they're looking at Bible translations, don't realize the languages reflect two different mindsets, completely different mindsets. And so you really have to make that switch whenever you're dealing with the two, the two languages. But Anyway, the the big thing is the ambiguity and the imprecision in David's speech is really telling because David is willing to to backtrack here. He he's still in the state of, of not quite panic, but you can see his desperation. He he's not being the careful, thought out David that we're used to. He's mm-hmm. he's very much, I mean, his sons just rebelled. His wives have just been attacked by Absalom. Now we've got this new threat on the horizon. He's lost his right-hand man. His son is dead. He is really not in a great place to be making these calls. I mean, we tell people, I mean, in counseling, don't make any major decisions for six months after a, a terrific or horrific life event, you know, after a death or a divorce, hold off, take your time. Right. David doesn't have that luxury because he's king. Uh, and I think it shows. So verse seven, 
And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the para- um, again, my, my um, writing gets me the best. Okay, the Cherethites and the Pelethites and the mighty men, and they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Shiva, the son of Bichri. Now, this verse supports the idea that the Lord in the previous verse referred to Joab, not David. Uh, as the men who, who Abishai leads out are specifically called Joab's men. And presumably, the men, these are the men that Joab threatened David with. Remember when Absalom died and David was taken over with grief and he was bemoaning the death of, um, of uh, Absalom? Joab basically said, if you don't get it together and act like a king, you're not going to have an army. So, right. you know, so this is, this seems to be the same guys that Joab had commanded such respect from that he could take the army away from David. Now, we met the Cherethites and the Pelethites before, and this is in 2 Samuel 8, 18. And, you know, there's, there's been some debate among scholars about who these guys are. Most of them now agree that they are foreigners. They were probably Cretans who immigrated uh, along with the Sea People. Remember, the Philistines were the Sea People who came over. We talked about that before. And David seems to have hired these guys as his personal bodyguards. Now, the 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 wisdom in this is they don't have tribal loyalties. They don't have tribal allegiances. So even if tribes decide to fall away from David, or there's a split within the tribe, within the nation, they are not going to be swayed by politics. These guys only have one motive and one motivation. That's money. Mm. And so if you can keep paying them more than everyone else, you have their loyalty. And this is a very shrewd move on David's part not to have uh, other Israelites as bodyguards. I mean, we've already seen Israelites get swayed. I mean, look at Ahithophel. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he completely deserted David because he didn't agree with David's politics. These guys don't care about politics. They just want to know, are they going to get paid? And the fact that David would release them into general battle actually tells you the depth of his desperation. Why isn't he keeping his personal bodyguard with them? Why is he sending them out to fight this, this uh, threat to the nation? It only makes sense if David's really desperate and he wants to pad the number of troops as much as possible. Otherwise, you keep your bodyguards with you. Mm-hmm. So verse 8 says, When they were at the great stone that was at Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath, fastened on his thigh. As he went forward, it fell out. Okay. Anytime you get this much detail. There's a reason. Yeah, I was wondering about that, because it seems like a little bit odd that a sword would just fall out of a sheath. Yeah, and that's the thing. You don't typically have a sword that's going to fall out of the sheath. You don't take a a warrior like Joab, who is so experienced, he's not going to accidentally put it on wrong. He's probably been strapping a sword to his side since, you know, he was a boy. And Mm. he, he does it in his sleep. He doesn't need to think about it. And so um, there, there's a lot of stuff going on here. So we're going to start, uh, we're just going to kind of take it, out, uh, take it apart at the beginning. So the location is someplace we're already familiar with. Uh, back in 1 Samuel 14, this is the place, the Stone of Gibeon, is where the men gorged themselves after Saul's vow. Remember, he said, you know, whoever ate 
is going to die, and it turned out to be Jonathan. But after they won the battle, the men were so hungry that they were eating the blood. And so Saul had to be corrected by the priest and be told, hey, this has got to come to an end. We, don't, we, we can't let our, our armies defy God's word this way, so we need to put something in place to fix this. And so Saul set a big stone so the animals could be slaughtered on the stone, presumably so that when they were slaughtered, the blood could be drained from the, the carcass, and then it would be um, okay to eat under Torah law. So it's very possible that this is actually the same stone. We aren't sure, but that there's a good possibility because evidently the stone had some significance, and that would have been a significant event in the history of Israel. Now, Second uh, Samuel two, we we found we're right back at Gibeon. We don't have a mention of the stone, but. This is the place where Saul and David's armies faced off over the pool, and they were having the debate. And then they mm-hmm. remember Abner and uh, Joab faced off, and Abishai and um, Joab's brother had chased um, Abner, and Abner had killed him. And of course, this led to Joab killing Abner, and much to David's dismay, and was kind of showing the beginning of some uh, friction between the two of those. And so we, we're supposed to expect something violent, something bloody, something that's not quite right to happen here. Because the two times we've had it mentioned before in the book of Samuel, good things have not happened. So Amos is here. And again, he's not with David. He was supposed to be with David. We aren't told why, but and we've already talked about you know, what in the world's going on. But the, the surprise moment really is, is that Joab's here. All of a sudden, Joab, who has been removed from his position as David's general, shows up. He's not leading the troops, but he, he's not going to stay at home. He's not that kind of guy. If, if Israel's in trouble, if David has a need, Joab's going to be there. And uh, he's also not going to accept being replaced by someone else without a fight. We've already saw that because one of the reasons he may have killed Abner was not just because Abner killed his brother, but because Abner was Joab's counterpart in Saul's army to Joab in David's army. So Mm -hmm. Joab's going to keep his position. Now, we get this very detailed account of what Joab is is wearing. Uh, In the ESV, it says it's a soldier's garment. Uh, Alter says it's a battle garment. Art Scroll also has battle garment. Uh, Zamora calls it military attire because uh, Zamora is a little proper sometimes. Uh, Bergen calls it a military tunic. So the, the main thing is all of them agree this is specifically something that a soldier wears. This is what you're going to wear into battle. But it's not a commander's robe. It's not a general's robe. This is uh, something different. And the word itself carries the connotation of it's, it's measured. So we kind of get this mm. idea of a uniform. Um, we see this uh, referred to very often in Leviticus, where it refers to the priest robes. The priest robes were measured. Mm. They, they all wore the same thing. Um, it's a relatively w- rare word outside of uh, Leviticus. But... Um, it's our first link to a, another story, which we're going to return to. Uh, now, the, the sword is fastened on Joab's thigh, not hung from his waist. And that's typically how a warrior would wear it. It would be 
uh, hanging from his waist. And so when Joab steps forward, the, the sword falls out. And most commentators speculate that this was very intentional, that this was the sword was positioned in such a way that when Joab came forward, oops, it hit the ground. Because what happens next, Joab's going to need his sword. And if he would have drawn his sword, then that would have drawn a lot of attention. Falling to the ground, you know, it happens. Big whoop. Nobody's mm -hmm. thinking anything of it. So anyway, Joab says in verse 9, is it well with you, my brother? He's talking to Amasa. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand. Again, detail. Whenever you get that kind of detail, you got to ask, why is it there? And he, mm -hmm. So he takes Amasa's beard by the right hand and kisses him. Now, again, Amasa and Joab are cousins. So, you know, for Joab to actually go to Amasa to greet him, uh, basically say, hey, we're putting putting our differences aside, no ill will, we're, we're good. Uh, they, this would have been expected. I mean, they, they probably grew up together. They, right. I mean, even though he was Absalom's general, uh, Amasa was Absalom's general, Absalom was part of David's court for a very long time. Joab was the one who advocated for Absalom to come back. So there wasn't this huge rift for, for a very long time. And they functioned as a unit. And I think we need to remember that because when we get presented with these characters a lot of times, we don't, we aren't told about the happy times. We aren't told about how they function together. We're just told, hey, here's the conflict. So we mm -hmm. need to remember there, there's background here. There's no reason for Amasa to, to think there's something to be suspicious of. And, you know, he was probably just relieved Joab didn't appear to be holding a grudge at this point. Now, right. <laughs> now, the practice of grabbing the beard uh, is not mentioned anywhere else, but here it's kind of presented as an act of affection, which totally makes sense. If anybody's seen pictures of my husband on, on Facebook or what have you, have you, you know, he's got the long beard. Uh, and it's just very natural to grab, the, grab his beard, and it's just something we do. But it could be that um, this, was, this was practiced at the time. I mean, because just to be realistic, when you go to kiss somebody with a big full beard like that, if you don't grab hold of it, <laughs> sometimes you can wind up with a face full of, of whiskers, and that's not always the most pleasant. So, uh, but the, the importance and the significance of grabbing the beard here is he grabbed the beard with his right hand. And so even though we don't have the, the detail in the next verse of when he picks up the sword, we know he's got to pick up his sword with his left hand. Right. So now we have another connection back to the story I said we're going to return to. But we're going to keep going. Amasa 10. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, blow and he died. So we've got several details that take us right back to Judges 3. Where we got Ehud, the left-handed Benjaminite, and he made a two-edged sword that was fastened where to his thigh. It was under his clothes. We have that specific mention of again that same word for a measured garment. It's the only place it shows up in Judges. He takes this tribute to to Eglon, 
which is a sign of affection and devotion, which is exactly the same attitude that Joab is approaching Amasa with. He takes the sword in the left hand. He strikes Eglon in the belly. And then we are told that wonderful graphic detail that the dung fell out. So we also have connections with Joab and Ehud because they both use shofars. They're, they're one of the few who are specifically said to use shofars in summoning the truth. Now, Joab is from the tribe of Judah. Ehud is from the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjaminites are known for having these left-handed warriors. Remember, they were mm-hmm. supposed to be great warriors. And so it's kind of interesting that Joab is using his, his left hand to wield his sword. But again, this is probably just a testament to the fact that this is how good Joab is. He, he can fight, you know, you get that scene in Princess Bride, you, you left hand, right hand, you know, <laughs> he can do it all because he, he's, the, he's the best warrior aside from possibly David himself. But we've already been seeing David, man, he's just not the warrior he used to be when they're going into battle against Absalom. You don't bring him into battle with you because we can't count on him to win now. We got to protect him. And we're going to see more evidence as we move forward into the next chapter. But um, anyway, Joab and Ehud both approach, you know, their target under the guise of peace. And the, the fact that the sword is on their thigh and it's mentioned specifically of both of them, it means that it's concealed under the, these Hebrew, um, Hebrew garments, the mod, uh, made. And so uh, the, the, the strike to the belly with the sword from both comes with the left hand. So each victim, there's a spilling out with uh, Amasa, his, his guts, his intestines fall out with Eglon, of course, his, um, the dung spills out. And so when we have these, these retellings, uh, we, we need to, once again, and I know we talk about this a lot, but I think this is a new concept for a lot of people reading the Bible, that you see how you're supposed to read each story in light of each other. And I think this story is telling us how we're supposed to view Joab, because he's very much in keeping with the character of those judges. I mean, he, he is that product of that culture and that age where your prestige and your, your um, value is really based on whether or not you can lead people successfully in war. And we got to remember when we're talking about judges, we aren't talking about somebody who sits behind a bench in long robes and, and bangs a gavel. We're talking about mm-hmm. these warrior tribal leaders who, who rose to prominence because they were able to successfully push back an enemy. They, they were the same kind of warriors that Joab was. And we also need to remember that in that day, violence was how you stopped violence. If you wanted mm-hmm. peace, you met violence with violence. And this is what Joab does time and time again. Anytime there's a problem, there's some kind of, you know, there, there's some enemy approaching Israel. He leads the army out to, to push them back so that the, the land is protected and so that David is protected. And, um, you know, Joab is interesting because he does embody so much of the, the, the previous age. I mean, in a lot of ways, he, he's very much a living artifact 
from, from that time of the judges. And now I'm not saying there's not going to be violence going forward because we've left the time of the judges. Um, but it's not the same. You aren't going to lead Israel anymore just because you're a good warrior. You're going to lead Israel because now you belong to the succession of kings, the dynasty of David, and you don't have a, a, a kingdom unless you have a son to fulfill that next role, someone to take mm -hmm. that place. And David really bridges the gaps between these two ages because David still hasn't established the fact that he's going to have a kingdom because he hasn't had a son take the throne yet. I mean, Absalom did for a little bit, but he's dead. David is, he's, he's really working towards making Israel into a political entity where politics will guide the future, not just who wins on the battlefield. And so um, it's really interesting that you see these divisions or these distinctions between the two and how Joab and David side by side really present um, the, the kind of the, the leaving behind of the old ways and the the beginning of the, the new ways. And you, it really provides a really good illustration of the distinction there, I think. So, sorry, I got a little distracted. The cat was trying to join me. Um, and there's not a lot of room on these bar stools for a cat and me. So <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, now, I'm, I'm curious, and I don't know if you, you have anything on this, mm -hmm. because we, we have someone being betrayed with a kiss. Mm -hmm. We have someone's entrails spilling out. Um, is there a is there a connection here to the the passion narrative? I, I I think there is, and I haven't been able to nail it down as far as like what the theological significance is, because Joab was very loyal to David. Egl, I mean, Ehud was doing what he was supposed to do, and then mm -hmm. now we have have Judas, of course, who you know, the betrayal of Christ, good grief. I mean, how do you even begin to, to excuse that? Um, I, I, I don't know. And s other than it was well, necessary. And, <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, I don't think anyone excuses it. Mm -hmm. I mean, but I, I'm, I am curious about it because it's like, is, the, is this a reversal, a, a, what we're seeing here? Is it a, is it a, one of the, what are you, I can't think of the word for it, the, uh, uh, where you, they go underneath, subverting the subverting. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's just it, it, a subversive retelling. Yeah, that's that's. I'm I'm curious about that because you have it, it's almost. I don't know. It almost seems like a progression. I I don't know. I'm, it's I'm I'm confused. Well, I mean, no, there, there is because when you look at Joab, everything he does, and I wasn't there in my notes yet, but everything he does is in defense of David. He, he really believes that when he disobeys David, he's actually protecting, he's helping, he, he's doing the right thing when David doesn't know how to do better himself. And so, you know, and in uh, many times, Joab's right. I, Abner shouldn't have been part of David's uh, entourage. Um, David shouldn't have been grieving the death of his son. David probably, I mean, politically, yeah, putting Amasa in place of Joab was great, but Joab really is that guy David needs in his life. 
to to keep him going down the right path. And so now compare that to to Judas' motives. I mean, can we find that playing in anywhere? I mean, does Judas think he knows better than Jesus, or is he just being bought off? And I think that's the the big question, because Joab, I think his motives are good, even though his actions might be questionable. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, if you Mm -hmm. take it back to Ehud, I mean, obviously, um, what he did was right, because he killed Eglon, the Moabite king who was oppressing Israel. Now, he's not without criticism either, and if you go back to that, that episode that we recorded on Ehud, what you find is there's a lot of questions. Why was he taking this tribute to the king? Uh, when he stopped to look at the idols, was he worshiping the idols? Was he even presenting the idea that he was worshiping the idols to this Moabite king? And was he wrong in, in his deception to get that close to Egon? So there is some criticism on both. And obviously, Joab's not going to come out of this well, because when Solomon takes the throne and David's dying, David's one of his last commands to Solomon is be sure and kill Joab. You you can't leave him in charge of your armies. You've got to get him out because he has done these terrible things in the past. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I like Joab. I, 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 the more I study him, the more I like him. Because I, when I've heard his stories in, in previous times, you know, before I went into all the detail and what have you, I was always thought he was just kind of this rebel who didn't know how to behave himself. I, I thought, sure. he, and now that I'm studying and seeing what he's doing, I really see this guy who has at his heart, he wants David on the throne. That is his one. I mean, he could have taken the army at any point in time. He made that very clear whenever he threatened David. And so and the story is going to play out, and we're going to see even more evidence that that was precisely. Um, well, it was very much a reality. And, mm-hmm. and so I think it's really, it's really interesting to have Joab, particularly in contrast with Sheba, because Sheba's call is, hey, let's go back to the time of Joab. Let's go, I mean, sorry, the time of Judges. And here mm-hmm. is Joab mm-hmm. very much in that, that vein, that, that feel and tradition of the Judges, which was what David was opposing. That's why David was, was anointed king, was to take them out of that, to bring them out of a time when every man was not doing, you know, when, take them out of the time when every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. And so it's really kind of interesting that the man who says, no, we're not going back, we're not going to let even, you know, David accidentally take us back there by doing something wrong, it is this guy who is so much like one of the judges. So it's, it's this kind of weird full circle where we had Israel who first cried out for a king. We need a king. We got to have a king. Everybody else has a king. We need someone to defend us from the Philistines. Now we, we've had two kings, or three, mm-hmm. if you want right. to count Absalom. And they're saying, no, we don't want a king. And... It was the judges, and our last judge, which was Samuel, who opposed the, the anointing of the king, who warned the nation and said, no, you don't want him. This is why you don't want a king. And now we have this new judge-like figure in Joab saying, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure we keep a king. 
Right. And so it's, it's this really full arc within the story that that's just fascinating. I, I thought, and, um, Joab, I mean, when, when David replaced him, he could have just packed up and left. He could have said, you know, I'm done. I'm out of here. You don't want me. But his loyalty and his devotion was such that even if he had to be one of the soldiers just among the masses, he was going to continue to serve David in the army. And so this is one of the reasons why I like him. But um, verse 10, we're going to pick up on the last little phrase here. It says, And Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. Bichri, sorry. Um, Verse 11, and one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. So the writer leaves us with no doubt. This killing of Amasa has made it so that Joab could regain his position. Abishai, is just he just moves over, lets big brother step in. And Joab is once again the commander of David's, um, David's army despite the fact that he has just killed David's general. And so I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's huge. You kill the king's general, but you're still going to lead an army on behalf of him. That, that's, that's major here that Joab could even, I mean, that, that's gutsy. I mean, that is so brazen and so bold that it, when you think about it, it's really kind of mind-blowing that anybody has the nerve to try to pull something like this off. And that tells you something about his character. So Yeah, and, and how much he's respected. Exactly, exactly. Because, I mean, the, the army just falls in behind him. And they, I mean, good grief. If it had been anybody else, he should have been executed. But we're going to talk, talk some about that in a little bit. Verse 12, And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the men saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa off the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. So um, what's interesting is that Amasa had men with him who witnessed all of this happen. No one was brave enough to treat the body with basic respect. I mean, they didn't cover him with a cloak. They were probably afraid of what Joab was going to do. Yeah. I mean, seriously. It's very telling. I mean, and when you read this, it's so easy to just go, oh, well, they didn't move the body. No, you've got to think about what was going on in the minds of the men. And I think you're absolutely right. They were like going, Joab will kill us. We, we can't even. Yeah. Uh, it, it is so telling. It, these little details that we bypass because we read it too quickly. So telling. And so whenever the men file... I'd be a little terrified too, personally. Joab is... Uh, well, the description... Because there's, there's like... There's, there's basically... There's no... I mean, there is a lead up to this, but there's basically no lead up. Joab went from zero to kill in just a couple seconds here. Yeah. It's like, you've got what I want. You're in the place I should be. No one's going to get next to the king except for me. I, I mean, good grief. I, I, yeah. It, like I said, the more I read about him, the more I like him. I mean, the, he's the friend we all need. I, I, yeah. I, you know, I, he's the guy who's saying, you're, you're out of line. You need to get it together. Act like the person you're supposed to be. Um, 
by the way, that person you invited into your life is toxic. You need them out. I mean, I, I really, I think a movie about Joab, I mean, we've got King David movies out there. Why can't we have a movie about Joab? I think that would be amazing. So anyway. I thought you were, I thought you were going to say, we all need a best friend like Joab. This person's toxic. I will kill them. <laughs> I mean, well, maybe. I, I, I think that might be a bit extreme. Just, just, just touch. Um, <laughs> yeah a, a touch <laughs> a, a friend that's so close that went on your deathbed you're like they're going to be totally lost without me you should probably just just put them out of their misery <laughs> get, get rid of them <laughs> well and i mean good grief I, he is he is so fiercely devoted and you, i don't think david could have been the king he was without joab honestly i, I think david right. needed him um, was he out of line sometimes? Maybe, but I think his heart was always in the right place. So, um, in, in verse 12, what we find is that not only are they not moving the body when they, when they see him, they, they just all kind of stop and stare. They, they can't even continue on with their, um, you know, following Joab, they have to stop and contemplate what this means. And so Joab's man, the one who had yelled out and said, hey, you know, whoever's with David, follow Joab, he has mm-hmm. to remove the body from the field. And so um, the, the, the moving of the body kind of did two things. One, it allowed people just to get on with what they needed to do. But it also meant that they didn't accidentally come in contact with the blood of a dead man. And so it, the way could, could be cleared ceremonially as well as practically. And mm-hmm. so uh, that comes into play. So verse 13, when he was taken out of the highway, all the people went after Joab to pursue Shiva, the son of Bikri. So the, the writer even tells you, once Amasa is like out of sight, out of mind, everybody just falls into line. Joab's the mm-hmm. guy that they're with. And, you know, and Joab just steps right back into that place of David's commander. And, you know, there, there's just no hesitation. There, there's no, wait a minute, what do we do now? It's like, oh, it, we follow Joab. This is what we do. And I think you, you've really got to look at what Joab has done. And we've talked about it some, but, you know, he, he's killed Abner. He killed Absalom. He killed the king's son. He has jumped David's case for not acting like a king. And now he kills David's general. And so the fact that Joab is still alive is kind of even a testament to the affection and the respect that David had for him. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, David orders him to be killed when, on his deathbed. But while David is alive, David, I, I know, it sounded like it was no big deal. Uh, but well, No, I'm just, I'm, the, the whole scenario is just weird. And we, it's not something that I've really thought about in depth. I mean, it's... Can, <laughs> Just thinking, you know, is in my experience, uh, having been a manager in different, <laughs> different uh, businesses, mm-hmm. where it's like you have someone who comes in and they don't like the new hire, so they just kill him. I'm just, the, and I'm running like these ridiculous scenarios in my head now of of how this all, how would this play out today? <laughs> yeah, it's just like didn't like the new hire. Yeah, you know, off with him. It's just. Really but the fact that David allows really it strange. just really blows my mind because by all rights, Joab should have been executed a few times over at this point. And yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm totally with you. I, I agree. Um, 
it, yeah it's it's very interesting it's like what what is it about him of uh, you know that really is keeping him safe you know i i really do i think because at some level david knew everything joab did was really in service to the king everything that joab did even in defiance of what david had decreed was Joab's attempt to protect David from either an outside force that Joab just really, or that David couldn't wrap his brain around because David was being emotional. David was uh, allowing his uh, bonds to this person to cloud his vision. I mean, we can even go back to, to Abner and the fact that, you know, Abner was probably in Saul's courts during the day that David was living in Saul's house. And they probably knew each other. And so when Abner approaches David, it's like, oh, yeah, here's a friend. This is somebody I've lived with, I've eaten with, I've traveled with. I've, you know, we've shared all this experience. So if he wants to join me, yeah, I'm going to accept him because it's an old friend, despite the hmm. fact he was on Saul's side. And Joab's going like, no, this, this doesn't fly. Uh, you know, David, it, he has that tendency, and we've seen this over and over again, to have this misplaced compassion. And we've talked about that specifically with the, the scenario with Hanun, the son of Akash, and with Mephibosheth and, you know, the contrast and how he dealt with the two of them or how he dealt with Mephibosheth versus um, Shimei. Uh, and the people who were most loyal to David were often the ones the most at risk. David always, he always seems to be reaching for the approval and acceptance of people who are not completely sold out to him. Once you're sold out to David, once he has your unquestioning loyalty and uh, devotion, he kind of almost seems to be done with you. You know, it's like he won you over and now he's got to cater to somebody who's just outside his circle of influence. He's got to bring them yeah. in. And, yeah. and so the fact that he, he does this and Joab's one going, no, dude, you can't do this. <laughs> You've got to hang on to the people who are loyal to you. So um, I, I think that David, like I said, on some level, he gets it. He understands it and he knows he needs it, even if he doesn't like it. Now that's, that's me speculating. I'm having to read into the text and, and that's how I'm making sense of it. So if I'm wrong, okay, fine, I'm wrong. Um, I don't think anybody's going to have an argument that can be supported from the scripture in a different way. I don't know. If you do, you know, by all means, um, bring it to the table. We'll, we'll talk. Yeah, we're here to learn. That's what we're doing. I mean, absolutely. If, if we're not doing that, what are we doing? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and I have learned so much in the story and I never expected to really learn this much studying Joab because he always seems like just kind of the side character in Bible study and mm -hmm. Sunday school class. And he really is pivotal to the success of David's reign. And so that's, what's going to make what happens on David's deathbed that much weirder and harder to, to make sense of, which we won't do just yet, but we will get there. So anyway, Fair enough. Uh, we're going to go ahead and verse 14. Uh, I kind of a little intro here because we don't have much time left, but uh, Shiva passed through all the tribes to Abel of Beth Maka, which on all the Bikrites assembled to follow him. So this is going to be really interesting um, because Beth Maka is, uh, is a, a dig now, a current archaeological dig. Uh, so we can, 
it's a legitimate site. It's been excavated. Um, it's on the borders of Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. So it's, you know, this place that's just rich with all of this historical uh, significance and the fact that it's been preserved. And actually, archaeologists, um, one of the articles that I read said that they owe a debt of gratitude to this woman who's getting ready to show up on the scenes because if she had not stopped Joab from pursuing Shiva the way she did, that all of these great archaeological treasures would have been lost. And so this one woman from history actually has preserved all of this knowledge for, for millennia for, for us to learn from. And I'm like, how cool is that? I mean, yeah. <laughs> whenever you put it into that kind of context. So um, this is an important city because it's on the Via Maris, which is the highway to the sea, which is the, the north-south uh, trade route that goes through Israel. And so if you had any goods to transport, you were going to go through the city, go by the city. It's also at the crossroads of the east-west trade route. So again, you've got all of these cultures that are coming here. You, you have some major wealth. And this is one of the reasons why it is such a rich archaeological site is because you can uh, see the influence of all of these cultures in these various ages. And um, it was pretty much continuously occupied. There's a couple little breaks, but overall from the Bronze Age, which we're talking back Abraham and Isaac age, all the way to today. And so um, these excavations really begin to unravel this next story that we're going into. and. It, it's to me, this is one of those really interesting stories because there are so few stories in the Old Testament, particularly where the women play such a pivotal role. And we're going to see that this woman actually manages to change Joab's mind and that she saves the city and she helps make sure that David's reign is intact. And she, she becomes very instrumental in the preservation of the kingdom of Israel. And that is, that's massive. And mm -hmm. yet when we tell her story so often, uh, she kind of ends up being this, this bit player who, um, you know, okay, she had this little conversation with Joab, who's also a bit player. But whenever you start looking at the stories in context, you begin to get the sense of just how significant these people were. And I think that's one of the things that we forget. If their stories are in the Bible, they were significant. Their stories were important. And so just because it doesn't make for a great flannel graph or a good veggie tales, we, we need to, to honor what has been preserved for us because that's how we're going to learn from it. And we got to quit discounting these stories like I did with Joab and like we've been tempted to do with this woman who, Quite honestly, she's been discounted because scholars haven't known what to do with her. And that's the reason why I want to bring in this archaeological um, information. And we'll talk more about that on the next episode because I don't want to get too far into the story and then have to stop. So hopefully that'll get you kind of uh, excited about what we're going to talk about next week. Sure. Sure. No, I, I think it's going to be really interesting, especially, you know, this is a story I'm not real familiar with anyway. So being able to to bring that in and, and see some other sources uh, play mm -hmm. off of it. Um, but this seems like a great place to break. Um, everyone, thanks for joining us. Uh, hit us up next week. Find out what happens. In the meantime, uh, if you have not, hit the subscribe button. 
like, share us with a friend, write us a review. Um, all those things help us out, help us uh, spread out, uh, spread what we're doing. And uh, hopefully this is uh, intriguing and helpful to everyone out there. Um, if you want to be part of the conversation, ravencreeksc.com is the website. Gets you to all of our shows, gets you to show notes, and Raven Creek SC on all the social media gets you connected to us. Uh, send us a message. Um, sometimes we are a little slow at responding because it is, um, you know, just a few people uh, doing this. We don't have a staff. A few? We are the, Who's the other person? Well, I mean, Raven <laughs> Creek Social Club all together. Yeah, no, we can't. But for this show, for this show, it's just the two of us. Um, we are the cast and producers and everything. Uh, so. Many hats. <laughs> Yes. So, uh, but yeah, be part of the conversation and uh, let us know if you have any questions, comments, or insights to any of the stuff we're talking about. We'll be glad to hear from you. Um, until then, I guess we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.